A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's a really wonderful graph. If anyone wants to go and Google it, it's a little bit hard, but I'll try to describe it on a podcast. And it, it shows what happens to men, men's earnings and women's earnings and their wealth when they have children. And what happens to a man's is uh, basically nothing. So you have this <laughs> chart that goes from like the bottom, you know, imagine a chart that goes from the bottom left-hand corner up to the top right and over a career of 60 years or so, it, it just keeps going. And and what happens to a woman's is that it instantly drops down and it stays down and something like a decade later, it starts to kind of recover and, and never even builds back up. So a really interesting statistic is that women on average reach their peak earning um, in their late 30s or their early 40s, which is telling us that a whole lot of mothers just never even get back to where they were beforehand. I'm your host, Natalie Dronovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Women's Build series, where my intention is to delve, discuss, and understand what it took and what it cost my guests to build their respective success, be it a business, a brand, a product, or a career. To look at our collective framework for the future, in which women share, cultivate, and widen the community spirit between women, will lead to unquestionable inspiration. As this segment evolves, I'll be sitting down with a variety of women who have dominated and triumphed in their chosen fields of expertise or business areas and surpassed expectations. To say they have achieved success is certainly an understatement, because what doesn't get spoken about enough, and what I will be uncovering in these episodes, are all the bumps, backwards and sidesteps, learnings and leaps along the way that built not just their careers, but them into absolute powerhouses. While there may be similarities, no two success stories are ever the same. However, a commonality amongst my guests on Build, and something which I believe is of the utmost importance, is that they are willing to throw the ladder down, to share their knowledge and experience, so that other women can also succeed. My hope with Build is to provide a space where stories are shared, successes are explored, and failures explained. Because when you listen, you learn. And my aim is that you take something away that changes a behavior, removes a block, or perhaps provides an alternative approach that will have a positive impact on yourself and your careers. For episode two of Build, I sat down with Christina Hobbs, who is an experienced board director in the superannuation industry and a former Deloitte management consultant. 
She has worked as a humanitarian and financial inclusion expert for the United Nations for over a decade, is a former board director of the Global Women's Project, a published author on gender equality, and now is the co-founder and CEO of Verve Super, Australia's first ethical superannuation fund designed for women by women. And most importantly, they are building a community supporting each other to grow the wealth of all women. I feel like health food is like financial advice. Oh my God, totally. A lot of bullshit. Totally. Shades of grey. Totally. Yeah. That's a very good analogy. I've never had it until that moment. So thank you. Already <laughs> providing yeah, yeah, already providing me with such valuable knowledge tips. Um, Christina, thank you so much for joining me. It's exciting to have you here and to talk about, you know, hot topic of money, money, money. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Uh, so let's kick off with your rapid fires. What is a female stereotype that you cannot stand? That's easy. Women are bad with money. First childhood crush. Paul Boundy, it was year one. I'll never forget him. I kissed him in the playground and then the whole the teacher had to bring the whole class together to discuss that incident. So I will never forget that. First thing you bought for yourself? It was a CD. Which album? I can't even remember. I just remember that my dad bought me a CD player for Christmas and they gave me with it an ABBA CD and a Beatles CD and I remember I had to go out and buy something else and I can't even remember what it was. I find that funny. You know when you see those memes now and it's like you know you're old when? Yeah. And how like kids these days you'd be like what's a CD and they're like what do you mean? And lastly who is a key female role model for you and why? I think still Julia Gillard is a really is a really amazing woman. I still really look up to. I think she was so um, she was so audacious and she did so much in her career. And I think she really held herself high through some really tricky situations. So I often think about about her. I love that. So uh, I really want to get started and actually talk about a bit about your UN work because it was, I guess, the initial learnings and grounding fundamentals of your career in life. Um, You previously worked as a humanitarian and financial inclusion expert for the United Nations for over a decade in Baghdad, Iraq and Syria. What is a humanitarian and financial inclusion expert? Yeah, it's a really good, interesting, and it was a bit of a strange career turn. So I was working in Deloitte in financial services, and one day I had a complete spin out and ended up going on an Australian government program to Nepal to work as an economist for a year, sort of in a, not a volunteer position, but in an Australian government funded position. And I was going to come back to Australia. And then things started taking a really different turn. So it was during the time where the whole global community was going from in emergencies, giving people stuff, so giving people blankets or food um, or shelter, to understanding that if we give people cash, um, people can understand what their needs are better than we can and can accommodate them. So sometimes if there's been a natural disaster, what people actually need is money for food, but sometimes what they actually need is money to go out and rebuy their cancer medication. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or it could be that they, you know, some people have still have a house, others don't have a house and need and need to buy a tent for urgent shelter. So it was really this whole transition of giving people cash and also so that when emergencies happen that you don't dump a whole lot of stuff on a, on a country and then crash their local markets. Um, but I worked for a UN agency called the World Food Programme and it was the largest, it's the largest humanitarian organisation in the world. 
and it was full of logisticians who were amazing at moving trucks from place to place. But it wasn't full of people that were good at setting up um, emergency banking systems. And so my career took a very strange turn and I ended up in these really wild places with my financial services background, setting up um, mobile money transfers in Somalia during the famine, setting up um, in Turkey. uh, One of my last projects was um, supporting 1.3 million um, people and over 3 million people, including their families, to go on to the... um, to go on to a banking system where they could receive cash transfers and linking it to the government system. Um, so these were Syrians who'd been living in Turkey for many years and were quite destitute. That's Even as you're saying all of that, I was like, that's completely true. Even now when it comes to uh, when there's global strife, we think about what, are the, what can we give them, what can we give them, but no one thinks of cash. I guess the question that I have or that prompted me was how do we who where does the cash come from how do we decide how much each person gets and then is then there an education for them on how to spend it is that was that part of your work yeah they're like the three big questions that we're always answering really so a lot of my job was trying to get that money um because there's some huge budget so the last project I was in um was in Iraq and we were supporting a million people Um, every day. So that's a huge amount of money. So um, that money comes from our government's aid budgets. Um, When you say governments, you mean around the world? Yeah, around the world. So um, in Australia, we give a certain amount each year in in humanitarian aid and and that money is increasingly going into cash. Um, Who to give it to is really heartbreaking because it also goes to how much it's... When you've got disasters where there's millions of people displaced, you give each person a few dollars Mm. and have very low impact or do you really try to seek out those most in need and give them enough to be able to afford their basic needs so generally what you're striving for in a disaster situation is to cover absolute basic needs which is enough kilocalories um, to get through your day some form of basic shelter um, and getting children through primary school education that's sort of the very base level you're trying to Um, you're trying to cover for. Um, And then what was the third question? Uh, Do we educate them on then how to spend it? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. A lot of work's gone into into education, particularly around food. So um, trying to work out, trying to support people to really make good decisions when they do have really limited um, money. But I think overall what we've seen over the last decade as we've transitioned is that um, surprisingly, people, not surprisingly, is that um, is that people actually really know how to prioritise what they need in, in disasters. In situations like that, do you find it's more the men or the women in those countries that are controlling the assets that they've been given? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So we had it in um, when I was working with Syrians. We, I, I, I always, as a principal, try to provide the cash transfer to the woman because uh, we can see that there are better results in terms of women Um, Not all women, but um, typically at a broad scale, women tend to prioritise their family's basic needs. Um, And But one of the challenges in cultures where um, women don't typically um, control the money and you don't want to create conflict within families by trying to impose something. Um, But that was a situation where when we gave people sort of cards that could only be used in supermarkets, um, we were able to really easily give them to the women and that was really culturally accepted because the women were used to doing the shopping. Um, But when we transitioned to just giving people pure cash, it became a lot more tension about who should hold 
hold the card. But also just a really crazy situation because we were giving in that situation, we were putting people into a banking system. Many of them had never had a bank account before or even used a bank card. So even supporting people to use an ATM. Yeah. Um, often we don't even have cards. It's mobile money. Um, sometimes it's iris scanning. Um, because there's obviously a lot of the other challenges in these situations in conflict, particularly, is we need to be really certain that the money's going to civilians and not going back into the conflict. But that's what I was thinking. Um, as a privileged Western woman, is it heartbreaking to be in those areas when all of this is going on? Yeah, it's really, um, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. I think when I was younger and I first started, I really wanted to get to know everyone I was serving. And right. I spent a lot of time... Um, in the camp, you know, if it was in a refugee camp situation, really getting to understand who I was working with. And I think as my career went on, I found that extremely difficult because when you're trying to serve populations of three million people to understand and to really be processing all of those individual stories is really is really difficult. But there are some people that I still think of today and I still wonder where are they and have they managed to navigate themselves out of the situation yeah I can only imagine it would be such an emotionally laboursome experience yeah and I remember my boss once telling me which I didn't appreciate at the time because I was quite young but she said that it was when she had her first child that suddenly she was just breaking down really all the time so um, and I think she was really able to feel it on a different, on a different level, level. Mm. wow Whew. Um, <laughs> that kind of leads me into what were some of the struggles that you think were aren't spoken about enough in contrast that we're never going to experience in the privileged Western world? Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, I think it's like that real, real sense of, um, of hopelessness or that real sense of fear, I think, um, that I felt a lot amongst a lot of the um, families that I spoke to. And I think often when you hear some of these horror stories about children, uh, parents selling off children or marrying off children in natural disasters. They're not evil parents. They're people that are having to make decisions about. And I know a lot of these parents, I can only really afford to support one child or two children, but I have four or five. And that real level of desperation. And I wouldn't want to say, though, that we don't have that in Australia, because I think that um, there are also women and men today who have families who are experience homelessness and are in a similarly um, really fearful situation for their family. So mm. I think there's different levels of it. Um, and it's something that I know as a really privileged person, I'm never going to experience because I have enough friends and family that even if I lose all my money tomorrow, someone has your back. Network. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we think about financial issues that women face over here, we, we generally speak about um, glass ceilings, pay inequality, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel the issues that you would have been dealing with over there, as you've shared, are so much more stark in contrast. But are there any commonalities outside of, as you just mentioned, homelessness? I feel like it's completely on a different scale. Mm. But is there any other commonalities that you see as to why there's um, the inequality with men and women? Yeah, I think the same sets of, um, the same underlying issues um, are in all countries still. Um, there's very few cultures in the world today that don't live in patriarchy. So, and I think that that causes different issues in different countries and to different severities, but the ultimate result is um, that women, in a, you know, in, a, in, in, context, in capitalist context, money is power and in patriarchal context, 
um, that power is held by men. And so we see that in Australia, we see that um, internationally in, in much poorer countries as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to talk about with you building your financial foundation. Um, I certainly knew at a young age that financial autonomy was the key to freedom, as you've just mentioned, money equaling power. And I know it may not be the worst here, but there are issues that women are facing when it does come to building financial foundations for ourselves. Um, our history is that of codependency, you know, wives that are raising children, the husband are bringing home the bacon. Um, and to be honest, thank goodness that feminism has kind of created a movement and that social change is enabling and happening. Whether or not we're choosing to be independent or not, money itself seems to still be a taboo topic within my female friendships versus my male friends. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a few I think there's a few factors behind it. I think one is that typically a lot of the value associated with women by society has been around our looks and our capacity to manage the home, whereas for men it's been around their capacity to earn and, and breadwin and and so I think there's this natural sort of um, differentiation of in terms of the messages we've received from society. So particularly around money, um, we women we know manage um, most of the household consumption, and so we're just constantly bombarded with these messages around by this, you know. Um, but spend, then we're all, spend, yeah, spend, 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 or oh, you've blown your budget. Save, save, save. Like it's these very like. And then so there's this like buy, buy, buy and then this sort of subtle like you should feel guilty for having spent, spent, spent. And I think so much of the messages we receive around that and there's a great research that came out recently out of the US which basically showed this. It was like um, 70 to 80% of all the messaging women receive was around buying or budgeting um, whereas the vast majority of financial messages that men received was around um, was really around accumulating wealth to build power. So it was either like powerful purchases as in like buy your suits buy your like yep. work things or it was um it was around investing and growing wealth yep. so just really different messages um and I think that also you know if you look at where women are coming from with money um we've we've we're going from a situation of we weren't even um allowed to hold our jobs after we got married not that long ago that was only really abolished in the 60s um, to a position now where we are supposed to have equal pay or at least entitled to it. Um, we're entitled to keep working, keep earning. So it's only really in the last um, few decades that women are starting to really acquire um, large wealth that they've self-acquired. And so I think there's also just a natural progression of like now is the moment where, we, where we're probably thinking more about investing and how we build that wealth. Do you find with your female friendships, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you probably do, or at least you hadn't before where they don't talk about money? Yeah, certainly. I think um, a lot of my friends don't talk about money. And um, interestingly, because we are quite a feminist group in general, I still see in my friends that are married to men that they have, um, and I think it's more because of the um, the um, emotional load and the um, just the pure double burden of work and care that they don't have time to manage money as well. And so that whole wealth management has gone to their partners. Um, and I think that's incredibly um, dangerous actually for a lot of women. Um, and so I think it's something that that financial independence, even if we're financially interdependent within our relationships, having a, a form of financial independence is is really important. Yeah, I certainly can see that there's a lot of shame that sometimes comes when people don't have financial literacy. And this certainly comes to light when there's breakups or there's divorce. And there's this realization that for a long time, there was just a reliance. 
and a lack of understanding and and a lot of I don't know he did it mm. and I mean we are pigeonholing here but most commonly that is generally how it unfolds when it is same uh, sorry um, heterosexual relationships yeah that's so true and I think the key words is shame and guilt and um, I think it's it's I would actually say almost the, ma- the majority I think of conversations that women have to me about money involve some form of shame or guilt so whether it's a shame because they haven't been able to build up their super balances enough and they're reaching retirement and they're quite afraid or whether it's a form of guilt around a credit card debt um, and I don't think that men have that same shame and guilt around their poor purchases. So there's no evidence to show that women do splurge more than men. But mm. um, the narrative around women always sort of splurging and feeling guilty is so strong. And there's so many of those other narratives around women and money that I think we, we, we do internalise them, of course. If, if for anyone listening, they go, to the, they go to the cafe on the weekend with their girlfriends, uh, what would you say is the opening question that they should start to be having with their friendship circles? I think it's, I mean, it depends on where you're at, but I think that, um, I think starting to talk about investing is a really important one because, and it depends where you're at. If you're a friendship group and you're all really high in credit card debt, then there's some great conversations that you could be having around like how you could save and get out of that and make different money choices. But I think the really exciting discussions are around investing. And I think even for people who are in debt, I think starting to dream about how they could accumulate wealth in the future is a great motivator to get out of that debt as well. Um, and I think it's it's really important because to, to retire comfortably and to live um, a really comfortable life, we do actually need to invest our money. We can't have it in cash. Um, if you literally have your money in cash, over time that money will actually erode because of infl- inflation. So the value of that money erodes. So we have to invest it. Um, and the way I like to start these conversations with my friends or with other women is really about what a wealthy life looks like to you. And I think it's the basis of these discussions. Um, and wealth is really the meaning of it is having an abundance of what you value in your life. And I think if we start with those conversations around what do we really value, what do we want our lives to look like, and then we can start to think, okay, how do we need to manage our money to support that life? And I think that's a much more motivating conversation for women because what I also hear from a lot of women is like, I don't really care about money. Well, that's what I was about to bring up. And this kind of pisses me off because I find that that conversation happens when people say, I don't care about money. And then on the flip side, they're always the ones who are complaining how they wish they had more. Mm. And so you know, that's almost like a language problem within itself because they're saying, oh, no, it doesn't matter. And I feel like that's just when people are pushing away because they haven't got their life together, which is fine. Like, I think at some point, most of the time, someone, we all go through our own learnings when it comes to financial independence. But there's this like, oh, I don't, I don't mind. And then, I mean, I was curious if you hear this one, um, you know, it doesn't mean that much to me. I can, I can live with a little. I've got the things that matter. You know, I've got my family. I've got my kids. Yeah, I hear it all the time and I think there's two there's two sides to that because on one hand if that is actually true like that's wonderful and I think that's a really great acknowledgement because there's certain women who after we do financial coaching what we actually say is the best thing you could do is drop down one day a week at work because you have what you do value is your family you've got enough wealth like this is what you truly value but I think what you're getting at which I think is really really common is this fear that we're actually not going to have enough, particularly when we retire. So a lot of women meeting their current needs, they know that they're not accumulating that wealth for the future. And the way that they express that fear is like, oh, I don't, I don't need it. I'll be okay. I just want a very simple 
life. Um, and I think that's really problematic because we shouldn't live with that fear anyway. Um, and, and I think it's really important to really understand what, what a good life does look like for you your whole way through and how you're going to have to set yourself up for that. Yeah. So how can we change the way women engage with wealth also so they think larger than just their current income and paycheck? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this on my walk to the podcast this morning and something I hear all the time is um, is for women saying, okay, I'm going to try to save 10% of my salary. I'm going to try to save 20% of my salary. And wouldn't it just be like a really interesting little flip of like, um, semantics or the way we think if instead we said okay I'm going to invest 10% of my salary I'm going to aim to invest 20% of my salary each month hmm. and so we're not just aiming to save we're aiming to do something with that with that money and that's such a different that then opens up like a whole different way of thinking it makes your mind think differently like if you're getting I it's a Tony Robbins thing that I love and he always says if you're getting bad responses you're asking shit questions yeah, totally. And totally. And then I think it's like, how do we have fun with it? So I think um, there's a lot of fear around losing money. Um, there's a lot of fear around, I don't know, the best decision to make. And I think it's, I think something that's important is like, if, you, if you've got cash in the bank and you're not investing, um, you've made a decision. Like you're making a decision every day. And that decision is going to, is, is one that is not going to ultimately support you in the best way to build wealth. So if you make a different decision around, okay, how can I start learning about investing? Um, there's some basic ways that you can invest that's, you know, you can do things that reduce your risk, um, that, um, you know, a, a simple ways to get started. And I think just getting started, having a bit of fun, seeing how it goes, not putting all your money in one basket. Um, the more you start, the more you have a play and you start to see that um, things are working, you're starting to build a bit more wealth. Um, I think that's what excites people to keep going. Mm. Well, I, I recently attended an event uh, that you were speaking at and something that you said I actually thought could be so relevant to whether or not um, people don't have money and they want to understand what would happen if they were to invest, let's say, in stocks. Or, for example, you know, my, my wife and I were like, cool, we want to invest, but you don't really understand yet stocks or the market, etc. And one of the things that you mentioned was, hey, why don't you go pick a stock, decide, hey, this is what I would invest, just like, you know, imaginatively and then you watch it over six months and then you see what it would feel like if you had have invested and I thought it's such a great simple role play for on for either of the spectrums where you're not ready or you are and you're not sure how this works to kind of feel and understand your risk for appetite yeah your exactly. appetite for risk I should have said yeah no exactly I think it's, it's a good one and, and um, I have seen like a number of women in the past who have done a lot of research and they've thought okay this is what I'm going to invest in they've made a really smart decision but they just don't quite want to go through the trade and then they've done a, a dummy trade so you can do it on the Australian Stock Exchange website if you already have a trading platform from your bank you can have a go and, and do a, a do a, um, a play one and then I think when you see how that moves over a period of time um, and you're like, oh, well, now I would have this much money, that can really encourage you to, to go forward and do it. Uh, what other systems do you think that think we could or should uh, put in place to better our financial capabilities? Yeah, I think the first one is really having a plan. So I think knowing where you want to go throughout your life, what your big goals are, and then understanding how you need to manage your money to get there. Because I think if you don't have that big plan and you can adjust that plan all the time and how you want to do that planning can change. You might want to check in every month. You want to might want to do it once a year. 
Um, but having that big plan and then working your way backwards, you don't have to be a math genius to do that and to work that Well, out. isn't that all the women? Now, maths isn't my core thing. I'm not good with numbers. And we kind of just flippantly throw that line around to justify our lack of application. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think most of us, I want to say, can use Excel in a very <laughs> simple way. Um, we can definitely all use calculators. We've all done sort of high school maths. Um, and that's really all the basics you need to to start working out what you might need for some of those goals. There's also some great tools. Um, the Government Money Smart website has some amazing calculators where you can have a play about what you might need for the retirement that you want to save for, um, where you might need to work out how what you might need for a house deposit. So the tools are all out there. You just need to, to find them. And then I think once you've got some goals, so some short goals, some long goals, um, that's when I think um, you build the motivation to start working towards them. Um, and that might be a goal to cut up your credit cards within six months or a year, or it might be a goal of I want to buy a house or I want to retire. Um, and then a lot of other decisions can flow from that. So if you're in a job um, and you feel like you're not earning enough, um, once you know what your goals are, you can, you can better evaluate, um, actually, I love this job. I can reach my goals with this job or actually I'm not going to be able to reach these goals with this job and how am I going to navigate to a job where I can. What about for those women who are listening and they do make great money, uh, what are the commonalities that you see where women do have high incomes but they aren't maximising their returns? Yeah, so cash in the bank, cash in the bank. If you're listening right now and you've got over $10,000 cash in the bank and it's not in there for a really specific purpose – um, then you're, the first thing you need to do is to start working out how to get that money working for you. Um, because as I said before, if that money's just sitting in the bank, it's going backwards. It's actually slowly going backwards. Um, so there are some really, really simple ways that you can get started with investing. Um, something I talked about at the event you were at, and I won't go into a lot of detail now, but just exchange-traded funds. So these are low-fee um, funds that allow you even with a thousand dollars to um, buy into hundreds of companies so and there's all different types you can buy into Australian companies you can buy into global companies so it's not picking I think this one company is going to do well this year it's just saying in general I think the stock market is going to go up and we know from the market that it goes up then it you know we have bad years where it goes down and it goes up again but if you're somebody with ten thousand dollars or more um, and you don't need that money um, for a number of years, or maybe you don't need it right through to the future, then a really great way of getting started is find an exchange-traded fund, go do some research that you like. Um, you just buy it on the stock exchange. It's very simple. You contact your bank, your financial institution, download the trading platform, move that money into that account, um, go and make your trade, make a purchase, um, and I'm not, not giving anyone any sort of really solid financial, personalized financial advice here, but I think what I'm trying to get you to understand is that it is actually very simple to get started. And there's ways that you can get started where you're diversified, you're not risking everything by putting all your money in one, in one account. So if that's you, if that's resonated, go out, research exchange traded funds, research some other Go onto the Government Money Smart website, re- research some other low-risk ways of getting getting started with investing. I Even as I'm listening, it's kind of interesting because I'm in a position now where I want to 
invest, etc. But as you lay out the steps, you're like, wow, it feels overwhelming at first. And then you realize if you just break it down bit by bit by bit, it actually starts to be achievable. And just like anything will actually lead you to a greater education and perhaps return. Totally. And I think um, I imagine that most of the women listening to this podcast um, or non-binary people or men um, are relatively educated people. And um, you don't even need you don't need a university education to make a good trading decision. Um, you just need to do some basic research, understand how to diversify, reduce your risk, and make a decision. And as I often tell women, you may not choose the perfect fund. You may choose an exchange traded fund or a managed fund, and what you get out of it is you get a 6% return where with another fund you could have got a 10% return, right? Like your first decision, you will not make the best decision because you only ever make that with hindsight. But you can make a good decision and that good decision will lead you to a better position than where you were if you hadn't... Just sat there with your 10,000 in the bank. Exactly. Absolutely. And so it's like do the research, feel confident that you're making a decision, take a step, um, don't put everything into one one company or one investment, see how that goes, then try the next thing, then try the next thing. Sensational. So uh, I want to speak about women participating in unpaid work because I learned this as I was uh, researching yourself Mm. and looking up Verve. And I think because I'm not looking to have children, um, nor is Lisa, that we don't think about things like childcare and generally the fact that women tend to be carers more than men and how you don't earn superannuation when you are a mother. And I wanted to ask you, how damaging is motherhood to our finances? Yeah. That's it a- sounds brutal, but I wanted to ask like that because it yeah. is. It's a really great question. And what I, would, what I would say is that motherhood isn't damaging to our finances. It's the policies that we have in Australia that are very patriarchal and don't support, don't support mothers is, is what's damaging. Um, there's a really wonderful graph. If anyone wants to go and Google it, it's a little bit hard, but I'll try to describe it on a podcast. And it, it shows what happens to men, men's earnings and women's earnings and their wealth when they have children. And what happens to a man's is uh, basically nothing. So you have this <laughs> chart that goes from like the bottom, you know, imagine a chart that goes from the bottom left-hand corner up to the top right and over a career of 60 years or so, it, it just keeps going. And, and what happens to a woman's is that it instantly drops down and it stays down and something like a decade later, it starts to kind of recover yeah. and, and never even builds back up. So a really interesting statistic is that women on average reach their peak earning um, in their late 30s or their early 40s, which is telling us that a whole lot of mothers just never even get back to where they were um, beforehand. And so obviously we need lots of things to change. We need government policies to change, um, which we can all support and advocate for and become more aware of. But we also need to think about relationships and how money is managed in our relationships. And there's another really good um, statistic, which is around divorce. And so what happens immediately after divorce in a heterosexual relationship is um, that often the men, the man's wealth um, immediately has the largest drop. Yep. Um, but what happens over time is that if you look how that plays out over the next 10, 15, 20 years is that women end up significantly 
worth financially whereas men very quickly in a few years recoup recoup. yeah um and that's quite natural because if you think about when people have divorce it's typically when their children are a little bit older so it's often at that point where a woman's taken a significant time out of the workforce um she's lost a lot of income a lot of earning potential her potential to build up not just her income but her super has also been diminished um her capacity based on her earning um, to then borrow money from the bank, potentially to invest in a property or something like that is also diminished. Um, and so I think really actively thinking um, when you're in a relationship about how you're managing money um, is really, really important. So do you feel that there should be a lot more transparency between couples? Um, yeah, I think it's up, you know, it's always up for individual couples how to manage their money. But what scares me is when my friends sort of talk to me in money in a way that their partners are making all their investment decisions. So um, I've got friends who, oh, our partner's put all of our super into a self-managed super fund. I don't even know what it's invested in. Uh, my partner makes the property decisions. My partner makes the investment decisions. Because I, what I see so much of is I see women at the other end of it who are in their 60s, in their 50s. Um, they've gone through divorce. They don't know where their finances are. Um, they don't know how to manage that wealth. Um, often in divorce proceedings, they, with all the height of the emotion, they're not aware of the severity of the financial decisions that they're making and they're making very quick decisions in that process because they don't want to think about it. And it's only years later that they understand what they've given away. Um, And it's, of course, it's not just divorce. It might be partner loss. So we have women in our fund who have lost a partner as well and then found themselves in a real situation where they didn't know how to how to manage their finances. So there's the financial management side and then there's also the side of how can we, if you want this in your relationship, but if it is something you want, it has to be really actively managed with your partner about how do you, um, if you do have children, um, maintain an equality of earning capacity. So um, even if it might not make sense in the short term, um, if you if you as a woman do want to uh, maintain your earning capacity, that there needs to be a discussion around your partner also taking time out of the workforce to care for children. And sometimes these decisions that don't seem to make a lot of sense in the short term because, oh, well, my partner earns more than me, so it doesn't make sense. Um, in the longer term, it can make a lot of sense. So it can make a lot of sense for um, women to go back to work um, and their partner to come out of work to keep their careers going. But there's a lot of other decisions involved in this that aren't monetary. It's, it's you know, who wants to be with the children, who finds joy and pleasure in that. Um, and so you need to look at these things on the whole. Yeah. So that leads me to Verve. And I learned from Verve that 47% of women retire with less in super in their retirements. And I think that's all, we can all agree that that's a future we don't want to participate in or be a part of. And the mission with Verve is to build the financial power of women and remind women to prioritize themselves. So I would love if you could share a bit more about Verve and the importance of our super. Yeah. So the real um, reason that Verve exists is because depending on what data you look at, women are retiring, as you said, with between 37 and 47% less than men. So we really took a step back and said, okay, um, how do we support women to build wealth? So it's not just a, our fund's not just about super; it's about wealth. So how do we really support women? And we came up with three ways we need to do it. So one is around the political changes we need. So how do we build up a community of women in this super fund who will support us in advocating for those changes that we need? 
The second one was around what we've talked about today and it was around financial coaching. So how do we, um, without providing formal financial advice, how do we coach and support women to really understand the basics around building wealth? And so this is around super, it's around investing, it's around getting out of debt. So we provide free financial coaching. Um, By the time this podcast goes to air, we will have also, I think, launched our support squad. So we're bringing on a whole squad of women that our members can access. So we've got a pay negotiator. um, We've got a career progression coach. We've got a divorce coach. So if at key pivotal moments, um, our members need extra support, if you're going into a pay negotiation, we've got someone there that you can have a 20-minute, 30-minute phone call with. So really holistically, all these points, how do we support women to, um, to, 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 really build their own wealth and then the third aspect of it is one I really love as well which is how do we invest so our superannuation is really the biggest investment we'll ever make in the future Um, the fund that we choose is using our money to invest in the companies and industries of the future and one of the reasons that I started Verve was because I realized my own super was being invested in fossil fuels so in coal gas oil and I didn't want to look back in 50 years time and say oh in 2000 and 2019 I was I was investing in coal I I heard another story that you whilst you were in uh I'm not sure which country it was in the Middle East Mm. but you realized that your super was also investing in the weapons that were fueling the actual fights that you were trying to amend yeah it was in um I actually realized in Syria and it's it's still going on so um Australian superannuation invests a huge amount of money in weapons so right now um there's a horrific conflict happening in Yemen Um, with Saudi Arabia being accused by the UN of war crimes. And we have Australian superannuation being invested in the very weapons that are being used to perpetrate what the UN is calling war crimes. And I was just like, this is insane. Like, this is so insane. And, um, you know, I I recently heard the fund manager of um, one of Australia's largest, they're actually a, a relatively good industry fund, he came out and he said, you know, what's the point if we don't invest in, in coal and oil and gas, somebody else will, so we might as well. Um, and I was just like, what? Like, who are you? Like, this is just such an old way of thinking. Well, I wanted to say that because I feel like most people, when they look at their super, they're thinking, what will get me the best return on my investment? Like, it's what we're all thinking about considering mm. we do not want to end up destitute. We want to be able to live an affluent and fabulous life. But with what Verve do, it's about ethically investing and Ethical is a word that's thrown around a lot. To be honest, it's thrown around a lot for myself because my wife is an ethicist. So it's, I'm, I'm learning about it quite, a lot. Yeah. yeah. And so I w- would love to have you explain what it truly means to ethically invest. Yeah, that's a really great question. And one of the most amazing things about ethical investing is that in Australia and globally, so we've had Australian studies, we've had Harvard studies, Oxford studies, the truly ethical funds are outperforming the market by a lot, a lot. So you can ethically invest and make money. Totally, totally. Um, but this then goes, and the reason for that is that um, when you ethically invest, um, there's a bit more work involved because you have to intrinsically, you have to really understand the company. So if I say this company doesn't invest in weapons or isn't involved in weapons, um, you know, if it's a weapon company, that's easy, but if it's a bank or a financial institution, I've got to go the whole way through the supply chain of what they're investing in and make certain that none of the companies that they're investing are investing in weapons. As in that's what Verve does? That's what we do. And 
Sorry, did you have... Yeah, so another one, for instance, is around clothing. And so we don't support companies that are known to commit labor right, human labor rights abuses. So we need to go really through um, all the information we have around companies and their supply chains to make certain that there's no known labor rights abuses. So, But once you understand a company at that level, you actually really know if that's like a good investment or not because you understand them very well as a company. Uh, I'm going uh, to ask what might seem like a basic question, but why does it matter for us to ethically invest? Mm. Um, so some people I know purely ethically invest for returns. They, that's why. Yep. Um, and then I think, um, the other side of why it matters to ethically invest, it really comes down to you. So, um, for me, what we do with our money is one of the most powerful, um, contributions that we're making for the future. So our fund invests, for instance, we invest in renewable energy, we invest in healthcare, um, we invest in public transport. So I know that the money that I have is literally supporting those companies to do more of those things. My money is literally being used to build solar panels. Um, I don't think that it's for my own ethics, um, it doesn't make sense for me to use a keep cup to buy my coffee if I'm still investing in supporting new coal mines in Australia. Like that doesn't sit and we don't have these discussions and you don't hear people talking like I'm talking because your super funds don't want you to know this. Mm. They don't want you to be asking these questions. If you go onto their website, they're not going to tell you who they're invested in. Um, and as you said in your last question around um, what is ethics, um, there's, no, um, there's no regulations around um, who – what is an ethical fund or what's a socially responsible fund? So people are throwing these terms around left, right and centre. And so if you want to make if you want to make an actual ethical decision, the real ethical funds, they tell you very upfront. So on our homepage, it is we do invest in this, this, this. We don't invest in this, this, this. That may not match your ethics. So we, we designed our ethics by asking um, hundreds of Australian women what they did and didn't want their money invested in. And we made decisions based on that. Um, my ethics might not match yours. But what I can tell you is if you go onto our website, you'll see what we do and don't invest in. And then you'll be able to actually see the actual companies. So if you want to test me, you can actually look at the companies and people do all the time. They say, but you invest in this. Why? And then we have to explain that decision. Um, the interesting thing around superannuation is that legally, as a CEO of a superannuation fund, I'm not allowed to invest your money based on ethics. I have to legally base it on returns. So for every single ethical screen we do, I need to be able to prove to the regulator why I make that decision. So it doesn't need mean to be that I'm right, but take fossil fuels. So I say, okay, for humans to exist to continue to exist we know that about 80 percent of the remaining fossil fuels so coal gas oil that these companies currently own has to stay in the ground and so i know because i'm betting on a future like a positive future that i know that these companies at some point are gonna have to wipe off 80 percent of their value so i say to the regulator i'm not putting my my members money in that because i think these companies are going to collapse at some point 
Um, other super funds, they argue, well, we keep investing in it because we're going to get out before that happens. We'll be able to see the signs and we'll be able to move out. So the regulator accepts both of those arguments. But so interestingly, we don't. We were the first super fund not to invest in companies without a woman on the board. There's great evidence that shows that um, having three or more women or a third more women leads to better returns for the company. But the problem is that there's so many companies in Australia and globally that don't have a third of their board as women that when we ran that screen of what would happen, um, it had really severe financial impacts for our members. So we couldn't do it. So we had to only invest in companies that so we can invest in companies that don't that only have one woman on the board is the screen we have now, right. which is interesting. But also the wonderful thing as a super fund is that we're a shareholder. So we can go to the AGMs of these other companies that we invest in that only have one woman and don't have a third woman and we can raise that at their, at their annual general meetings and try to convince them that way. Thank you for explaining that because I, when I started reading about that, I thought it's so important to not just be a social media warrior and to actually with a thing that is perhaps the most powerful vote you can ever do where you put your dollar to understand why ethically investing is such an important aspect. Totally. And just I think um, if climate's something you care about, it's something I really care about. I think it's a powerful thing to be able to say in 10, 20 years' time to look back and say there was a moment when I decided I didn't want any of my money being invested in these and that was something I could do. Mm. So something I want to ask and I'll be completely honest and transparent. When I first met my wife, I got in trouble for the multiple super accounts that I had (laughs) and so could you just share what we need to know and be aware of and why you actually need to consolidate? Oh my gosh. Just some basic 101 oh because my gosh. Thank I, you for asking that. <laughs> I was definitely in trouble and there was a lot of eyebrow raising and I can't believe this. Oh my gosh. Good. I'm glad you got in trouble. No. Um, okay. So, so super funds, obviously um, we charge a fee for that, for the investment. Um, some super funds also will put you into insurance products without um, getting your approval. So they'll do it um, automatically. So what can happen is when you have multiple super funds, you're paying multiple sets of fees and if you've got insurances, those fees could be really high. So my first job, I've already said um, where it was, so I can't even do it anonymously, but they put, we, we, it was a company-based super fund and they had us in this extraordinary life insurance. So I was in my early 20s and I had some life insurance that if I died, um, my family would have been paid out like millions and millions of dollars. I didn't have a family. I was 20 years old. My parents didn't need that money. So I was paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for this. And it was only many years later that a colleague contacted me and said, have you checked your super? And I said, no. And he's like, I don't have any left. There's none left. And I checked the account and there was nothing left. I'd lost all my super from those first two years um, through paying for insurances I didn't need. And so imagine if you've got multiple funds, you could be paying this multiple times over. And actually something really interesting when you join Verve, we are linked to the ATO. We're one of the few funds that can do this and we pull up all your super accounts so you can roll them all in. And we regularly have people calling us being like, is this real? Is this actually real? Did I have eight, nine, ten accounts? Are these all mine? And we're like, yes. So I had this conversation this morning <laughs> as I was, Lisa was leaving and she goes, have you rolled all your accounts? And I was like, I, I swear I absolutely did. And she goes, you haven't, have you? And I was like, no, I think I have. And she was like, when you finish this podcast about supers, you are going to go do that. Yeah, so you can do it super easily. So um, many super funds allow you to do this on their website. You can actually also do it through your MyGov account. Uh, so there is no excuses. Yeah, 
<laughs> we all know what I'll be up to later. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess to just wrap us up, and it's such a broad question, but do you have any other tips or financial advice around how can we get better at ensuring we aren't so financially exposed, whether it's our super um, insurance fees or just anything that you find is coming up quite often now that you're in this world? Um, yeah, I think um, – I think it's about um, really taking the time is, is really the important thing and, and really prioritising it because I could give this advice across credit cards. I could give this advice across super. Um, I think the biggest issue is that we um, we push, sometimes we push the most important things away. So those things that we really know are important, whether it's cancelling a subscription, there's probably, I think half of you have probably gone, oh my God, I've got a subscription I don't use. We push it away. And I, I would ask or really implore everyone listening right now to just think about what is that one thing that we're constantly pushing away? And it sounds like yours is consolidating us. <laughs> it is. And it make is. an active decision to pull it in this week. So you're going to pull that in and address it this week. And all you need to do each week is one of those things because I think we each know the broad areas. We know it's investing. We know it's insurances. We know it's superannuation. We know it's our debt. Um, and so if we can just week by week pull one of those things in and commit to either researching more about it or doing what we already know we need to do, um, it is, I cannot, exp- I mean, I think at the event that you were at, we heard two women's stories that um, they were both in their, I'm guessing, mid to late 50s. And the stories were so contrasting. They both never had really high paying jobs but one had learnt to invest 10% of her income that was what her family did and she described just having a wonderful um, yes she retired with more income now than even when she was um, working and then the other one was like I'm single no dependents and I'm struggling where do I go and and it's investing and it's money management it's all those little those little bits really add up over a lifetime so pull them in um, actively manage them and you'll feel freer. Yeah, I've got to say being at that event, it was such a great moment to watch th- the three of you on that panel as women getting up there and I found it so uh, powerful and I'll use the word sexy and attractive to see women talking about finances with such a confidence. That's great. Yeah, and if it is something your members are ever interested in, you don't need to join our fund as well. You can just sign up to our newsletter um, and we'll keep you updated with any all of the events we do they're always focused around women money and power so sensational my last question you're standing in front of a room of 10,000 women and you're able to offer one piece of advice what would you say that is such a hard question um I think it's around stepping into the power you know I think superannuation has really made me aware of this Australian women have one point three ish trillion dollars in superannuation like that is an enormous like and that's just super like we have this enormous amount of financial power now and it's how can we use it and I think how do we use that to create the lives that we want but also the world that we want Um, and we're always told we can do it through our spending but we can also do it through our investing perfect way to wrap us up thank you so much for being here no worries thank you Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, 
It would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible. And all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 